wanted to start off this year with a series that would help lead us into the future. Um, and so uh, I've entitled this, Leave Your Native Country, Following God into the Unknown. Is there somebody here that can tell us what's going to happen tomorrow? Is there somebody here who can tell us what's going to happen this year? Don't we want to know that desperately? I mean, don't we look for people, listen to people? The airwaves are full of people who are going to predict for us what's going to happen, what tomorrow's going to bring us, and man, we want to know. Uh, we look to all those people, we try to listen, we try to get a feel for it. We want to be ahead of things. Um, it's interesting, though, as people try to predict, we as human beings try to predict, we probably get it wrong far more than we get it right. Um, I found some predictions from the past that are kind of interesting. Um, a fellow named uh, Lee DeForest, back in 1926, he said, theoretically, television may be feasible, but I consider it an impossibility, a development which we should waste little time dreaming about. He was the inventor of what became a TV tube. He didn't, he didn't see TV coming. Thomas Watson, back in 1943, said, I think there's a world market for about five computers. Chairman of the board of IBM. Missed that one just a little bit. Listen, I don't make any predictions of the future. I don't want to be a list like this that somebody's using as an illustration someday, but... Uh, then there was a recording company expert back in 1962. He said, we don't think the Beatles will do anything in their market. Guitar bands are on their way out. We want to know the future. We want to have a certain idea of what's coming, where we're going. And uh, it is true that God does give us some indication of what's coming. We know the Bible has what's called prophecy, and there's a, actually quite a bit of prophecy in the Bible, and uh, the vast majority of it has not come true yet. And so we still are looking, we still have some information about the future, but we don't have specifics. There's not a chapter in the Bible that's going to tell us what's going to happen in 2021. So we're, we're left with some specifics from God, but we're also left with with some mystery and some uncertainty. And so God really calls us to step into the unknown. He calls us to follow him and to learn to walk with him by faith. And I wanted to look at the beginning of this year at a story from the Old Testament. The Old Testament, that's part, it's that part of the Bible that um, is, is sometimes a little weird. We don't understand it quite. Um, the things that God did, the things that people did, it can be a little confusing at times. But I'll tell you what, learning from the past is a way to keep from uh, re recreating the mistakes of the past. Learning from history will keep us from fa uh, falling into the same pitfalls. And so we really need to look at the past. And so I wanted to look at one of the oldest stories in the Bible of a, of a man that God called out. And he worked with this man to do something great in the world. And I think we can learn from seeing how God interacted with people in the past the kinds of things that God does. And we can learn from that and gain insight to our own lives. So we can discover what God's doing today and what he wants to do tomorrow in and through us. And so I'm excited about that and looking at this story. If we go back to the book of Genesis, if you want to turn to Genesis 12 in your Bible, that's where we're going to be today, looking at the first section of this chapter. 
And uh, specifically, we're, I just want a little brief history. When we look at the book of Genesis, of course, it begins with the story of creation and how the world came to be and the universe came to be. And God created the world, and we see that he also created a man, Adam, and then a woman from Adam that he formed from uh, Adam's rib and created these two people, Adam and Eve, from which the human race originated. He put them in the Garden of Eden in a place that was perfect. They were untested. Their character was uh, untested, so they were innocent, but they weren't perfect. They just hadn't been tested, and God gave them a test uh, of obedience. Would they listen to him and follow him? And of course, if you know the story of Genesis, they did not. They chose to break that commandment, and that broke the relationship, and it brought a curse of sin on the universe. And so from there, we follow that in a very short period of time, the human race multiplied and grew, but it became very wicked. It moved away from that character that God intended for human beings to have. God created human beings to reflect him. Made in his image, we're supposed to reflect his character and, and, and live and do the things that he does and be like him. And so the human race moved away from that to the point that God was sorry that he created human beings. I mean, that's what he says. I wish I wouldn't have created these uh, creatures. They, they've gotten so wicked and so uh, sinful in their behavior. They moved so far away from me. And so God pushed a reset button and we're told a story of a worldwide flood where he chose Noah as one man who was still loyal to him, still had a heart for him, and he picked him, and he uh, rescued Noah and his wife, and then he had three sons, and they were uh, they built a, an ark, and they got on that ark and weathered a flood that killed virtually everything on the earth. And God pressed a reset button and started over. And with Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Noah's sons and their wives, they begin to repopulate the earth. And again, it didn't take very long, and we find a story of the Tower of Babel, where the human race had once again moved in the wrong direction, away from God. And they had gathered together a civilization as one people, and they thought, we can build a tower. And, and what's implicit in it, what's implied in the story, is that they thought they could, they could become more powerful than God. And they could lead themselves and rule themselves. As a human race. And so, once again, God came and frustrated their attempts at takeover by uh, confusing them with languages. And so he is where different languages came to be. And so they were, they were it slowed down the progression that they were on. And so they went, they, they were separated. This uh, separated them and fragmented them. And so we find in our story in Genesis, the end of chapter 11, verse, and, and the beginning of chapter 12, God coming and choosing to interact with a man named Abram. And this character, Abram, his name will be changed to Abraham. He's the father of the Hebrew nation. God chose to choose a person and create a people to represent himself on earth, to reveal himself to the human race. And the Jewish nation was to be a force against the movement away from God. The, the movement towards sin and wickedness. They were to be ones who represented him and lived for him and were righteous and holy and set apart. And so God begins this journey of creation of this, this group of people with a man named Abram. We get a little bit of sense of his history, where he comes from in Genesis chapter 11. If you follow along as I read just the final verses, starting in verse 27, it says this is the count of Terah's family. Terah was the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran was the father of Lot. 
But Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans, in the, uh, the land of his birth, while his father Terah was still living. Meanwhile, Abram and Nahor both married. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. And Milcah and her sister Iscah were daughters of Nahor's brother Haran. But Sarai was unable to become pregnant and had no children. One day, Terah took his son Abram, his daughter-in-law Sarai, his son Abram's wife, and his grandson Lot, which was his son Haran's child, and moved away from Ur of the Chaldeans. He was headed for the land of Canaan. But they stopped at Haran and settled there. Terah lived for 205 years and died while still in Haran. This is a little bit of the history of Abraham. Just gives us a little snapshot into his existence, his family connection. See, the world at this time was tribal and um, it was centered around typically a patriarchal figure and his offspring and the people, his children and, and uh, family was the center of everything. It was the, it was the bedrock of civilization. And it's how uh, the human race began to grow and develop. And God came to Abram after his father died. And he called him into a future that had some promises attached to it, but also had some mystery. Actually, a great deal of mystery. great deal of unknown. God called Abram to go to a place that he would show him. Just like Abram, God comes to you and to me, and he calls us to follow him into the unknown. The first thing God will call you to do is God will ask you or God asks you to leave your past life. That's what he did with Abram. Let's look at Genesis 12, verse 1. The Lord had said to Abram, leave your native country, your relatives, and your father's family, and go to the land that I will show you. Leave your native country, is what he said to him. Leave your family. Leave what you've known and go to a place I'm going to show you. Native means place of origin, place where your life originated, the place you grew up. And for Abram, his native country was Ur of the Chaldeans. Ur of the Chaldeans existed in what is known as the Mesopotamian River Valley. Mesopotamian River Valley is the place where we find in archaeological discoveries the first evidence of the human race, of civilization, of people. We believe this is the area where the Garden of Eden was between the Tigris and Euphrates River, rivers. And so this was the area where life began on this planet. It was the area from which Abram came. It's where he grew up. It was his country of origin. It was his native country. Things were different when Abram lived on the earth. Family, as I said, was the center of everything. And you would follow in line with what your father passed down to you. And we find... From Joshua chapter 24, that Terah, Abraham's, or Abram's father, did not worship creator God. He didn't worship the God that would reveal himself to Abram. In Joshua chapter 24, verse 2, Joshua speaking to the people of Israel. He says, Joshua said to the people, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. Long ago, your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates River and they worshiped other gods. Abram was about nine generations from Shem. Shem was the oldest son of Noah. And of course, Noah is the one that God chose to uh, rescue through the flood. 
and to restart the, the population on the earth. And so Shem, from Shem to Abram, is about nine generations, and already the knowledge of God, the worship of Creator God was lost. And, and these peoples had moved away to worshiping created things. Probably worshiped the, the moon and the sun, the stars. It was common, seems to be common in this era. But the worship of basically paganism. And so um, this is what Abram inherited from his father. This is the belief system, the religion, the practice. And it would have been synced up closely with, um, with uh, his way of living. Raising animals and livestock and, and crops. And so this is the world Abram grew up in. It's what he knew. At this time on the earth, family was everything. And so Abram, um, uh, being the oldest of his father's sons, his father would have had many wives, multiple wives, and children from those different wives. And so Abram, we're told, in Genesis 20, he argues that um, one of the times where he, we're going we're gonna to learn this about him, he does a little deceiving as he's learning to follow God, and he finds himself in situations that make him nervous. But he basically lied to one of the kings and said that Sarai, his wife, was really his sister. And the guy calls him on it, and he says, no, she is my sister. She's my father's uh, daughter, but from a different mother. And so, kind of odd, seems odd to us, but this is how um, families grew and people grew. And this is the world they lived in. It's the world that Abram came from. Family was everything to him. It was the basis of his provision, his belief system. All of his relationships were, were centered in that. And his future would have been tied to his family. And yet God comes to him. This God that he really doesn't know appears to him and says, Abram, I want you to leave all that. I want you to go to a place that I'm going to show you. What is your native country? What is your native country? You know, from birth till the time I left home, I lived in six different states, and two of them, I lived in, in those states twice, different times. Moved away, moved back, whatever. Um, when people ask me where I'm from, I say I'm from the United States. That's where I'm from. I've lived in a lot of it, different areas. I've lived in the southeast. I've got grandparents in the northeast, so I'm familiar with that area a little bit. Lived in the Midwest, a couple different states. Lived in western states, all the way to California, in fact, for a little bit. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I've lived in a lot of different places, and I've seen some differences. You know, there's different cultural differences. People are a little bit different in different areas, but there's one thing that I've identified that's consistent everywhere and that identifies our native country, and that is the presence of sin. It's everywhere. It's in all the people that I was ever around, no matter where I lived, and it was in me too. It was a constant thing that was... Uh, that I discovered existed in the world that I lived in. The truth is that you were born into a world filled with sin, a world skewed away from what God intended. We were all born into sin. We have a sin nature, which is a propensity inside of us to go away from the, God, the things God wants us to do and do what we want to do. It's an attraction towards things that don't honor God and don't reflect his character and nature. And the truth is we all have this condition uh, we're born into it. We exist in a world filled with it. And it's something that we're going to battle with. Mary and I started a study this year. First of the year, we started a study by a guy named Oswald Chambers. Um, he was around many years ago. 
uh, a Christian leader, uh, an evangelist. He worked with uh, people around the world, and he wrote a few books. One of them is a book called My Utmost for His Highest. And it's a pursuit, uh, a serious pursuit of following Jesus and seeing life transformation happen, growing closer to him and becoming more like him. How can I give my utmost, the best I have, absolute 100% of my life, for God's highest to, to uh, arrive at that place. And so Oswald Chambers deals with this issue of sin and the condition we're in with it. He says we have to recognize that sin is a fact of life. It's not just a shortcoming. Sin is blatant mutiny against God. And either sin or God must die in my life. The New Testament brings us right down to this one issue. If sin rules in me, God's life in me will be killed. If God rules in me, then sin in me will be killed. There's nothing more fundamental than that. The culmination of sin was the crucifixion of Jesus Christ on the cross. And what was true in the history of God on earth will also be true in your history and mine. That is, sin will kill the life of God in us. We must mentally bring ourselves to terms with this fact of sin. It's the only explanation why Jesus Christ came to earth and lived here and died. It's the explanation of the grief and sorrow of life. Don't want to be Debbie Downer today, all right? But, but I've got to, we've got to engage this topic and this issue because it's real. It's our condition. It's something we're going to battle with and war against for our entire lives. And the only way you're going to war against it, battle against it, is if you're trying to move towards God. If you actually have an intention and a desire to put some actions to trying to move in the direction God is calling you to go. Jesus is calling you to leave your native country, to follow him into the unknown. Listen, our sin nature, the world around us, we're born into it. We're born with a desire for it, a love for it, an attachment to it. It's what we know. It's what we're comfortable with. And if we're going to move in the direction God's calling us, Jesus comes and says, leave your native country and move to a place I'm going to show you. It's going to be uh, intense. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be scary to move into a different way of living. And trust me, following Jesus is a different way of living. You know, a lot of people think you become a Christian while your behaviors change. You know, you stop doing what you used to do, quit going out, you know, as one guy told me, I got to stop, you know, going out and getting drunk on the weekends, having sex with my girlfriend. You know, that's what we think. I'm going to change to become a different moral person. Okay, that's certainly a part of following Jesus. Your behavior will change. But what God's really calling us to is a change of heart to change what we're drawn to, what our affections are for, what we want out of this life. And he calls us to change that, to place him as our object of worship and the one that we're pursuing and that we want to follow rather than just ourselves and a love for the world that we live in. Jesus in John 17 had a high priestly prayer and he prayed these words as he's talking to the Father. He says, now I'm coming to you. I told them many things while I was with them in this world so they would be filled with my joy. Listen to this. I've given them your word and the world hates them because they do not belong to the world just as I do not belong to the world. Jesus goes, listen, I created this world. I created it. I created the people in it. He's the author of life. The Bible tells us that nothing exists 
but what he spoke it into being. And he said, I'm not of this world. I don't belong to this place. Why did he say that? Because the world that he created has been marred by this issue of sin, this skewing of what he intended. So he came from God as God in the flesh set apart from this world. He came to reveal to us who God is and what God wants for us in this life. And listen, I wasn't uh, very old in this world, but what I discovered, that if I was going to follow Jesus, that I was going to look like an alien in this world. When I got into fourth grade, Mr. Howard's class, um, I made a couple of friends, a couple of guys that I hadn't known before. I think we'd been in that same school. I'd been there uh, from first grade. But we got in this class, and it was new, and there were new kids, and I got to know them. And we started hanging out, playing together, recess, whatever we were doing. And all of a sudden, they discovered, it didn't take long for them to figure out that I didn't know any cuss words. And the reason for that is because I grew up in a home, like my parents were Christians, my dad's in training to be a pastor. Like, man, they just didn't use that language. So I didn't know, um, I won't give examples, but like, I didn't know any of them, all right? I didn't know any of them. None. Like, I had no idea. I don't think I'd even heard any on TV. And so here are these guys, they, get, they start discovering this. It was the funniest thing in the world to them. And I didn't know any curse words. And so, of course, what'd they do? They took it on themselves to teach me, all of them, right? They'd teach me every one. And so I'd make sure, here's a new one. And every day they came excited, teach me new words, you know? And of course, uh, whatever, I don't really remember um, any of them making a big impression on me, but it's not like I was going to start using them in my daily life, right? I wouldn't go over at home, and it's not the way I was raised. But, you know, just in a small way, I discovered that if I was going to follow Jesus, I was going to look different, live different, and I was going to look very strange to the people that I would get to know in this world. They would wonder about me. Who are you, man? What are you doing here? What are you really about? And that is the truth. That's what Jesus said. If you follow me, you're going to look like an alien here. This world is really not your home. You don't really belong here. You don't identify with all of it. You're different because you belong to me. We start to discover that the process of change comes because of the work of God. We recognize that the work of Jesus gives us this opportunity to follow him and to be different. John Wesley, who is one of the founders of the Methodist Church, He was robbed one evening as he was returning uh, home from a service. And the bandit, as the bandit was leaving with his stuff, Wesley called out to him, Stop! I've got something more for you. And the man stopped for a minute. The robber paused and he said, Listen, at some point in your life, you may regret this sort of living, doing what you're doing now. If you ever do, here's something to remember. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Well, the thief hurried away. Wesley prayed that his words would have some impact on the man's life. Years later, Wesley is greeting people after a Sunday service. He was approached by a stranger, and he was surprised, Wesley was, to learn that this uh, visitor, now a Christian and successful businessman, was the one who had robbed him years ago. The man said to Wesley, said, I owe it all to you, this transformation and change that I've gone through. Wesley said, oh no, my friend. You don't owe it to me. You owe it to the precious blood of Christ that cleanses us from all sin. He recognized, Wesley did, that life transformation comes because of the work of Jesus. In order to leave our native country and to follow God, we've got to recognize the existence of sin in our lives. 
We must never accept its presence. Get comfortable with it. Explain it away or, or say, listen, it's just, uh, I guess I'm just going to struggle with this forever. I guess I'm just part of who I am. I guess it's just part of my nature or something I'm not going to overcome. <clears throat> We've got to continue to resist it and move against it and identify it. Sidney Harris said, One, uh, once we assuage ourselves or consciences by calling something a necessary evil, it, begins, it becomes to look or begins to look more and more necessary and less and less evil. God does not just ask you to leave your native country. <clears throat> he calls you to follow him somewhere new, to a better place, a place that he wants to take you. God promises you a better future. There's something going around, it's been around for a while in our world, called a prosperity gospel. <clears throat> and it's the idea that um, God wants to bless you with stuff. And if you become a Christian, he's going to give you things. I'll take that water. Thank you, sir. Um, that he's going to bless you with stuff, right? And the truth is, um, you know, that's heresy. Like, that's not the gospel that the Bible teaches. Jesus doesn't say, come to me and I'll make you rich. But it does, he does say in the scriptures, come to me and I will bless you. And I'll bless your life. I'm going to lead you into a better future. And he does this with Abram too. Genesis 12, let's continue reading in verse 2. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous. And you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. He promises him a future. Abram was already a leader. He had amassed some things. He had a lot of stuff. Uh, he had his father's best. He had most of his father's possessions. Again, he was the oldest son, and so he would have gotten that. He had acquired some things. He was a bit of a leader. But God had something greater for him that he was calling him to. But we want to know the future before it gets here, right? As I said in the beginning, we, we desperately want to know the future. You know, human beings throughout the, uh, the millennia, we've looked to um, fortune tellers, right? Sometimes uh, to witches or people that seem to be connected to spirits and dark stuff. And we're looking for answers as to what the future holds. Uh, there's a story of a fortune teller who is gazing into a crystal ball, uh, crystal ball with a little frog sitting in front of her. Um, trying to tell him his future. And the fortune teller said to the frog, you're going to meet a beautiful young woman. From the moment that she sets eyes on you, she will have an insatiable desire to know all about you. She will be compelled to get close to you. You will fascinate her. The frog said, mm. he asked the fortune teller, where am I at? Am I at a singles club or something? And the fortune teller said, no, you're in a biology class. <laughs> Look, we, we want to know the future. We want to know where God's taking us. What is it that he's leading us into? We want to know before we go there so we kind of can decide that it's better. God offered Abram a better future if he would follow him. This future would benefit him, no question. And it would turn him into someone greater than he could be on his own. When Jesus calls us to leave our native country that's controlled by sin, he offers us something greater. 
He offers us forgiveness of our sin debt to God. The opportunity to get to know God, have a relationship with him, to walk with him. He offers us the wisdom and counsel that God offers us out of this world counsel that will transform our lives. He gives us the ability to choose. You know, it's said that before we trust Christ, we really don't have a choice. You know, a lot of people that don't want to become a Christian are like, well, I want to be able to decide what I'm going to do. I want the freedom to choose, right? Once I become a Christian, then all my choices are made for me. But the Bible actually teaches something very different. It, It teaches us that before we trust Christ, we can't do anything but sin. That's the only choice we have. And we may have choices inside of that, which sin do I want to do? But but we don't have a choice whether or not to sin. And yet when we trust Christ, all of a sudden the Holy Spirit comes into us and now we have the ability to choose to do God's will. Choose to do the good the Bible says we were created to do. God also promises, uh, promises us that we can live a life greater than we could have ever lived on our own. That he's going to build into us character and attitudes and strength that we could not have achieved on our own so that we will become someone much higher than we could have ever attained to. See, the truth is when you begin to follow Jesus, you become a leader. You're going to stand out. Okay, I'll be honest. The reason I didn't cuss in fourth grade is because I just hadn't been around it. But once I was around it, I had to make a decision. Am I going to go that direction or am I going to listen to what scripture says? Am I going to take the path that God's called me to? We have those kind of choices as we go through life. And the truth is, if you choose to follow Jesus, you're going to stand out. You're going to seem odd and strange, as certainly I have throughout the years, and you probably have too. You know that. And I recognize we don't all want to stand out, but the truth is that God is calling us to. He wants us to be examples to the world around us of who he is. It's the same thing that he had intended for the nation of Israel, to be an example of him to the world, so others could see what it is that God really intended for us. What is the life that he wanted us to live? And so you're going to become a leader. You're going to be set apart and different. And it's going to put you in a position that other people will look to you. They will make fun of you sometimes. They'll give you a hard time for those decisions. They'll tell you you're really not going to stick to them. You're not really going to do that. If you get tempted or you're in a moment, you'll give in. All that stuff. But the truth is, if you stick to it and you say, no, I'm going to follow Jesus, they're going to admire you as someone who has character, who has the ability to choose to do that which no one else will choose to do. This is going to set you apart. And your life, as you do that, will become a blessing to those around you. As your character changes, you begin to bless the people around you, your coworkers, your family, your spouse, your kids. See, the impact you'll have on them is very different because God's going to begin to use you to be someone different in the world that you live in, someone that reflects him. When God calls you, you obviously have a choice to make. Abram had a choice to make. But he recognized that this unknown God was making some promises to him that were compelling. He recognized that this unknown God to him was real and that he was there inviting him into an adventure, right, of following him. And so Abraham did what what we will do in these moments when God calls us is that you respond to God's invitation. Genesis chapter 12, continuing verse 4. Follow along as I read. So Abram departed as the Lord had instructed, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, and all his wealth, 
his livestock, and all the people he had taken into his household at Haran and headed for the land of Canaan. When they arrived in Canaan, Abram traveled through the land as far as Shechem. There he set up camp beside the Oak of Morah. At that time, the area was inhabited by Canaanites. Abraham, God said, go. It doesn't really tell us that Abraham knew or Abram knew which direction to go, that God directed him, go this direction. He told him not to go back home, not to go to Ur of the Chaldeans, leave that land, right? He was halfway to Canaan. His dad had already started that direction. <clears throat> I got to think maybe he got up and said, hey, I'll, I'll, I'll go this way. This is where I was headed. Let me keep going that direction. So he got up and left. He went, took action. He responded to God's invitation. He took his family, he took his possessions, he took all that he had, and he moved into the unknown. You can choose to respond to God's call at any time. Uh, I heard God's call uh, first when I was very young, about five years old, and I've heard God's call at different times throughout my life. But I'll tell you, I need times like this where I re-engage the call of God where I recognize that God is still calling me, once again calling me into a relationship with him to follow him into an unknown future. It's always the situation and the position I'm in. And so I want to walk with God and I want to re-engage. And I need times where I re-engage the call of God. See, life is a progression. You do not have it figured out now and you probably never have it figured out completely. And so you've got to stay in it in terms of the following, you've got to stay engaged each day, each year, in the progression towards becoming more like Jesus. Stepping out each morning and following him into the unknown. And this is a great opportunity for that. One of the things that can discourage us is when we get mired in our sin, we get caught in a sin pattern, we don't see victory in an area of our lives, and we begin to think, I'm really never going to overcome this. We get discouraged and deflated. Maybe it's because we've not seen the dreams and the ideas that we thought God was calling us to become reality. And so we go, this is just never going to happen. Am I ever going to get there and we can slow down or even stop our progression? And I want to encourage you, allow what the Bible teaches us about God, his heart for us, the grace and mercy which with, with which he showers on us daily, allow those things to keep you in the game, to keep you engaged to keep you connected. Each year is a new opportunity to see the things that you learned last year put into practice in your life, to see uh, the goals that you didn't reach in your relationship with God, to have another shot at those, to see some areas where you didn't walk in faith, you just didn't quite have the strength to do it, you, didn't, you just didn't follow through on it. I mean, you got another chance. Let's don't stop. Let's don't pull back just because of the uncertainty of the world we live in. Let's press in more. Let's step into greater obedience. Let's continue to desire to grow, that God would continue to teach us new things. I have new things to learn. I've got new uh, character to develop. I've got new obedience to walk in. You know, when I was a kid, I wasn't a good speller, uh, but we had a song when I was in Sunday school that taught me how to spell a word. The word is obedience. You know, it went O-B-E-D-I-E-N-C-E. Obedience is the very best way to show that you believe. I learned how to spell obedience. Proud of that. But, but it's true. 
the little simple song is true. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Press into this year. Re-engage the idea of obedience. I know sometimes, though, we get frustrated with people trying to push us and pull us towards obedience. The people that kind of bug us all the time about that habit we need to stop or that, that practice or that temper or whatever it is. That, you know, the, per, the person that keeps being our, the little Holy Spirit voice in our, in our ear going, hey, when are you going to stop that? You really need to change. And we get frustrated with them. We can, we can push back against that. You know, leave me alone, right? And we can get that attitude. Preacher, quit meddling, man. Quit talking about sin. Like, give me a good encouraging message, right? And so we can get in that attitude and have that heart. The truth is, though, we need to understand that the fact that there's people fighting for us, that we have a God that's fighting for us, he will never stop. He will never stop pursuing you. See, that's a blessing to our lives. There's a story of, uh, down in Florida Years ago, hot summer, uh, there was a little boy that had a swimming hole in his backyard, and he was ready for a swim. Man, it was the middle of the day, it was hot, and so he left out of the house, running down the hill, and he jumped into that swimming hole, uh, refreshed and cool. He started swimming to the middle of the pond, and his mother looked out the window about that time, and she saw from her vantage point that there was an alligator in the middle of the pond swimming towards her little boy. So she started yelling and screaming, ran out the door, stop, turn around. The little boy heard something. So he turned around, started, did a U-turn, started swimming towards the dock. Well, his mother's running down to try to grab him out of there and rescue him from the situation. As she reached the dock, the little boy reaches. She grabs a hold of his arms. At the same time, the alligator reaches him and grabs his legs. And they start a, a tug of war over this little boy. And it's horrible, horrific. You know, everybody's screaming and crying. And I mean, the little boy's in pain. His alligator teeth are ripping into his legs. And so fortunately, there was a farmer come along. He hears this commotion. He runs towards it, had the presence of mind to grab his gun, sees what's going on, shoots the alligator. Well, a little boy got put in the hospital. And miraculously, uh, after uh, several weeks, he, he started to heal up and get better. Eventually, he was let out of the hospital, and there was a news reporter that came, wanted to interview him about his ordeal. Man, what was that like? It must have been traumatic. And the little boy says, oh, yeah, it was horrible. He said, man, I bet you have some pretty big scars uh, on you. And he goes, oh, yeah. He pulls up his pant legs. Look where the alligator teeth dug into my legs, and I mean, ripped the flesh. I mean, it's horrible. But he goes, man, I've got some big scars on my arms, too. And he rolled up his uh, shirt sleeves, and he said, this is where my mom grabbed onto me with her fingernails and dug into my arms. And he goes, the reason I got scars on my arms is because my mom wouldn't let go. Instead of getting mad at those who are trying to help us do the right thing, pull us away from the world's influence, our flesh and our sin nature, the devil who wants to destroy us, we should be thankful that there's people that love us enough to help, love us enough to fight for us. I want to call us to embrace that call of God, the work that must be done in our lives. It'll take time to let go and to change, to move away from the sin that we wrestle with, move towards obedience to God. But one of the most powerful tools, and we see it in the life of Abram, is the, uh, is the act of response to God, to show appreciation for who he is. See, when you recognize what God's trying to do in your life, you respond to God by worshiping him. 
Continuing in Genesis 12 and verse 7, it says this, Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, I will give this land to your descendants. And Abram built an altar there and dedicated it to the Lord, who had appeared to him. After that, Abram traveled south and set up camp in the hill country, with Bethel to the west, Ai to the east. There he built another altar and dedicated it to the Lord. And he worshipped the Lord. Then Abram continued traveling south by stages towards Minegev. Abram, Abram worshipped God was his response. He travels down to Canaan. God appears to him again, reaffirms his promise to him. Says, I'm going to give you this land. This is the place. And so Abram's faith in God, his belief in God grew to the point that he recognized him. He said, I'm going to make this official and I'm going to worship him. And in Abram's culture, in his day, you built altars when you worshipped. And Abram's, uh, the, the Canaanites that lived around him would have seen that he worshipped a different God. As he built these altars and worshiped, they would have watched what he was doing. This word worship in Hebrew means to call out, to cry out to God. Abram worshiped publicly. People would have seen what he was doing. He identified him, himself as a worshiper of God. He grew to trust God, to love him more. What we worship, who we worship, influences who we become. If we worship things, we're going to be like, uh, we're going to become like stuff. We're going to only care about things. The God that you worship changes you. It affects you. And I want to call us once again back to a worship of one, the one true God, creator of the universe. The one who made you. He loves you. Jesus himself came to this earth to die for you, to sacrifice for you. Not so you could continue to live controlled by sin, but so you could live for him. I want to call us at the beginning of this year, call myself back to re-engage that relationship of following Jesus, living for him, fighting against sin, moving towards God. It's where we need to be. If we do that, we're going to become the people that can stand against whatever we face in this year, whatever comes our way, we'll be the examples to the world around us of how to handle it. God, I thank you for your call on our lives, for the way that you, um, you pull us, you grab a hold of us. At times you dig your fingernails in to uh, keep us from going the wrong direction. I want to pray for each person here. God, I pray for myself that we might re-engage our commitment to you. That we would choose like Abraham did, to follow you, to step out, move into the unknown, but to do it with you to worship you as we go. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.